Thank you for downloading this podcast from Lafayette Community Church. We hope this message inspires you to know and live the life you were designed for because we exist to help people just like you discover life in Christ. We are in week 18 of our study going through the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. One book, two volumes. Uh, Samuel dies halfway into the first book, and so he's not the author of the entire thing. We don't know who the author is of the entire thing, but it was originally written to be one giant story, and that story focuses on a few specific people who are chasing things, who are in pursuit of something. It starts with a woman who's pursuing God for a child, and God gives her a child. That child is named Samuel, and then we learn about Samuel, a guy who is pursuing the voice of God, and he hears God. God and he speaks the voice of God to other people. And then Samuel has to pursue a king. And so God tells him, I want you to go anoint this guy Saul to be the king. And he anoints Saul to be the king, but the entire time Saul is the king, he is only pursuing his own reputation. He's only pursuing his own self-interest. And so eventually God says, okay, Saul, I'm done with you. I'm going to choose a man after my own heart. I'm going to choose someone who is pursuing me and someone who is trying to be like me, God says. And so he finds David and he chooses David. And therefore we know early on in 1 Samuel, we know that David is the guy God is choosing because David is a guy who will pursue God back. And then the rest of the book, it's like David is this hero, but he's on the run because Saul, trying to protect himself, has been chasing David, trying to kill David. And the book ends with Saul's death and David's victory. In the same uh, section at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul goes to war and gets killed. He actually kills himself. And then David goes to war and has victory, and he rescues a whole bunch of people. And so we've just, the past couple of weeks, started 2 Samuel, and in 2 Samuel, we've learned that David has become the king, but unlike any king that we can imagine, David becomes a king who immediately wants peace everywhere. He becomes a king who immediately treats his opponents with respect. He doesn't say anything negative or bad. In fact, the people who say bad things about the former guy who was trying to kill him, David has those people killed. Because David says, no, even though Saul tried to kill me, he's still the, he's, he was still God's chosen king, and he deserves our respect. And so we learned a very interesting thing about how David operates once he gets power. But the question for us today is once David finally and firmly gets established as the king, who's really going to be in charge of this kingdom? That's a question that you and I need to ask about our own kingdoms as well. But... As, we, as we're going to find in this study today, David is, like we've seen before, a guy with flaws. He's a guy who does some things really well, and he's a guy who gets some things really wrong. Uh, last week, I told you that uh, he did all these things where he was putting God first, and he was uh, treating his enemies with respect, and all these other things, but we also saw that he was kind of an exploiter of women. And that's an important thing. I mean, we read the story about how David had six wives, minimum. We don't know how many wives he actually had. But he had had six boys already from six different women. And he then stole another woman 
to come back to him. A woman that uh, we usually pronounce her name Michael, but since that's my last name, I frequently pronounce her name the Hebrew way, which is Michal. But if I say it either way today, I'm just going to keep on going. But she was David's first wife, but then they got divorced because Saul, the king, took her away and sent her back to this other guy to be her husband. But David, even though he's got six women and kids with all of them, when he becomes the king... He goes and he steals Michal back from her husband. And the bitterness and resentment that must have been in her heart at that moment persists into today's story. And David's not very kind to her either. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go ahead and open it up and study it. What we've got in 2 Samuel 5 is God taking care of a lot of logistics for David. God is taking care of a lot of things to make sure David is in charge properly. And I don't have any blanks for us to fill in for chapter 5, but it's worth reading. I want to actually read through it. And you'll see all of God's work to try to establish David as the king. It begins in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will, be my shep- you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, there are a couple minor questions there that are rising to the surface. But the first one is I just want you to notice that now David is going to be king over the entire nation. Remember, when he became the king, originally that was in the city called Hebron, and he was only king over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And then all the other tribes were faithful to Saul and his son, King Ishbosheth. We talked about that guy last week. And so David has one tribe, and Ishbosheth had all these other tribes. But at the end of the last chapter, Ishbosheth's army uh, general said, I'm done with Ishbosheth. I'm going to bring everybody over to David. And that just happened. So now all the people have come, and they say, David, no, we want you to be our king. And now David is going to be king over all the tribes of Israel. This is a pretty big deal. But there's a thing in there that goes on that I find to be really interesting. And it is that it mentions that David was king in Hebron for seven and a half years, but then he was king in Jerusalem for 33 years, and we haven't heard about Jerusalem yet. Why would the guy mention Jerusalem? Well, because, of course, you and I are on this side of the story, and we know that Jerusalem is the most important city in all of Judaism. It's the most important city in the whole nation of Israel. It's the most important city, metaphorically, even for Christians. And so, we're about to read that right now. The writer uses the word Jerusalem, and then he's going to tell us about how Jerusalem became such an important situation. Here we go, verse 8. Excuse me, verse uh, 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Now, this is um, old school trash talk. I don't know if it's 
trash talk or talking smack. I'm not sure the difference between the two of them, but uh, either way, these people are in Jerusalem, and they're like, David, listen, if you took out all of our eyes and both of our legs, we'd still defeat you. I kind of get the picture of, you know, the Monty Python guy, you know, who's got his arms and his legs cut off, and he's just there on the ground, and he's like, I'll bite your kneecaps off or something like that. That's what the Jebusites are saying here in Jerusalem. They're like, David, there's no way you can take our city. There's no way you can win. Even a blind person could defend our city against you. Even a lame person could defend our city against you. But look at the very next verse. It's amazing. Uh, It says, they thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Like, how, how difficult was that? How many verses does it take for us to talk about the battle where David wins Jerusalem for himself? How, how many verses does it take? It doesn't take any. It just all gets piled into the word nevertheless. And so the people are like, you can't come in here. You can't come in. Oh, you're already here. You know, it's one of those things where David has won basically without any effort. But this is also really interesting because at the end of 2 Samuel... There's going to be a story, I'm giving you a hint, there's going to be a story about a guy named Araunah, it's a weird name, but we are told that Araunah lives near Jerusalem, and we are told that he is a Jebusite, and that's at the end of the story. And what that hints at us is the spontaneous and rapid nature of David's victory combined with the fact that we know of at least one other Jebusite who still lives in the area, means that David didn't go on some murderous rampage here. He didn't go into the area of the Jebusites and just wipe them all out. No, the reason no battle is mentioned is that no battle was needed. David just says, no, this is going to be my city now, and it happens. The narrator of the story doesn't give us any details about how it happened because the how is so insignificant. Because God just made it happen. So far, you should be able to see this. David wasn't going to be the king and God orchestrated the other people to come to David and say, we want you to be the king. And so then David makes a covenant with them before God, it said. Did you notice? And then David realizes he needs to have a citadel that can be the the location, that can be the capital city for all of the tribes. And Hebron was smack dab in Judah. He needed a city that was in between Judah and the other tribes, and Jerusalem was perfectly there for it. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he says, this is my city now, and somehow God makes that happen too. This is just amazing that God takes care of all of these logistics for David. Keep going, verse, uh, let's see, where are we? We are in 8. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. Now he's just taking the trash talk and throwing it back at him, and he's like, ha, those lame and blind people, they're my enemies, sure, whatever. Anyway, uh, that's why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. It's just a little historical comment there. It doesn't have a whole lot of uh, meaning for us today, although it will show up a little bit later, and so I'll talk about it then. Verse 9, David then took up residence in 
in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Somehow David has this conquest, and no bloodshed is mentioned. Maybe there was some, but we just don't know about it. But the point of the story is that God just made it happen. Verse 11, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This is something that doesn't happen, okay? This is, um, let's say, the president of the United States becoming president, and there is no White House. It's early on in the days of the country, and he shows up, and he's in Washington, D.C., and he's like, I need a place to live. And France says, guess what? And Canada says, guess what? And England says, guess what? We're going to come and build you a palace. Like, that's what just happened here. David has become king over all of the land of Israel, And right to the north of Israel is a kingdom called Tyre, modern-day Lebanon. And in Tyre, right there, the king of Tyre says, David, I'm going to send you my best wood and my best workmanship, and, and I'm going to build your palace for you. Like, that doesn't happen. Enemy kings don't build palaces for you. How? It's because God did it, right? See, the ironic thing, the interesting thing about this chapter is that we are told that David's influence is growing. We are told that David is becoming more and more the person in charge. But you can see what's really going on is God is making it all happen. Until we get to this next section. And this next little section, conspicuously, God is not mentioned. Verse 13, after David left Hebron, he took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. I don't know what those words mean. They're just names of people. I I think he probably had more children than that too because it says he took more concubines and wives. Now he's not even marrying the women. A concubine is a person that you haven't married, you just brought into your harem. You just have hanging around with you. She's a slave effectively and you're going to have kids with her perhaps or at least try. This This is disturbing, isn't it? Here's David still doing the womanizing thing. And surprisingly, the name of God is mentioned in all of these previous stories, but not this one. It's a little hint the writer, I believe, is giving us to let us know that this is a thing that God isn't doing. This is a thing that David is doing. All these other things God is doing. David doesn't ask for a palace. God is doing all that other stuff, but this is one of those things that David's doing on his own. And there's this question of if God is moving in a direction, are you going to follow him or are you going to do your own thing? 
How many of the decisions in our life are decisions that we make based on what we want versus decisions based on what God wants? Well, the story completes with David's victory, even acquiring peace for the people. Verse 17 says this, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. Now this is interesting. The king of Tyre is building David a palace. But the Philistines are like, No, 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 no. We don't want this guy. We want to fight him. And so they bring an army out and they're ready to fight him. And David says, okay, I'm going to ask God. Smart move. God, should I fight the Philistines? God says, go ahead. Verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord who breaks out Verse 21, the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Hopefully they didn't carry them off to use them, but we don't know. Anyway, verse 22, once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. This is great. David just defeated them. Now they've come out again for another battle. And David doesn't do the thing that you and I do all the time. Oh, well, this is how God led me last time. I'm just going to do that same thing again. David doesn't do the thing you and I do all the time. I know how to do this. God gave me advice last time, so I know how to take care of it. I'm just going to take care of it. No, David does the thing that David does. And he asks God a second time. What about now, God? David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. And this is amazing, because this is David, and he's conquering them. Now granted, God is just a really smart you know, commander here. Because the last time, the Philistines were attacked from the front. And now God says, no, attack them from the back. You know, circle around the back and attack them that way. It's just smart planning, right? But the fact that David asks God, the fact that God, through his priest, I'm assuming, gives David an answer, and the fact that then we are told David obeyed. David did what God commanded him. See, the question is, who's in charge? Is David really in charge? Well, sometimes. And sometimes when he's in charge, he makes mistakes. But when God is in charge, all these blessings are just taken care of for him. It's an amazing thing at the beginning of David's kingship that God is just making it happen for him. But now, we have a major question. Because at the end of chapter 5, everything that normal kings do has already been done. David now has a capital city, right? Now David has the approval of all the people that he is the king, right? Now David has women. I mean, most kings, that's the way they operate. They get more women, they have more kids so that they can have a dynasty after them. So David's doing that part. But David also has a palace now. He's got this capital city in the, and the palace in the capital city. And he's one piece 
final peace against the Philistines. The people have been bugging the Israelites for so many years. Now David finally has peace there. But there's a thing that hasn't been done yet. Religion. Right? Saul did nothing about the worship of God. Nothing at all. Saul was always just trying to take care of himself. So he hadn't done anything with the worship of God. Before Saul, there was Samuel, and Samuel was trying to get people to worship God, and he didn't care about the logistics of the, the, you know, the political situation in his world. He was just trying to get people to worship God. But now there's a king. And the question is, is David the king going to be a religious king pursuing God, or is he going to be just like Saul doing whatever makes sense? And the answer is, he's going to be a king who tries to reinvigorate the worship of God. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. I don't know what a sistrum is, but I'm interested in it. I know the rest of them. And cymbals. They're having this major party, but there are a couple red flags. The, the first red flag in the situation, I mean, it's not a red flag, it's just an important flag. Did you notice the explanation of the ark? It was like the ark. Oh, remember that thing that is all about God. Oh, remember that thing that's all about God's name. Oh, remember God's name is the Lord Almighty. Oh, remember that God himself is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, what that means is that this ark, if you don't remember the the Raiders of the Lost Ark or the book of Exodus, the ark was a golden box. It was a box of wood that was coated on inside and out with gold. And it had this lid on the top that was also made of wood, but coated all around it with, with gold. And so the lid was on the top, and then there were these carved angels. They're called cherubim. There were these angels who had wings, human-like forms that had wings, arching over the top of the ark somehow. And then we are told that God is enthroned between the cherubim. And that is because the priest, once a year, would go to the ark and he would put blood right there on the atonement cover, it was called, the lid of the ark. And right there, God would appear somehow right there on the lid of the ark underneath the wings of the angels and perhaps speak with the priest. We don't exactly know how that worked. But we are told repeatedly that God was present with the ark. Now, you remember the story earlier in the book of Samuel, right? When the ark got captured. Early on in the book of Samuel, the the people of Israel went to this battle and they were defeated. And they were defeated in the battle and then said, you know what? We really need God on our side, so let's get the golden box. Let's get the ark. And we'll carry the ark into the war because if we carry the ark into the war, then God has to fight our battles, right? 
Because if we're carrying God's box into the battle, God has to be on our side. That's what they thought. But they went against the Philistines, and the Philistines captured the ark, defeated the people, captured the ark. And they took the ark, this golden box that was supposed to be God's presence. The Philistines took it. And they did this weird thing. They put the box in their temple to their god, Dagon. And it was like, they put the box at the feet of Dagon, and it was kind of like, yeah, look at this. The Jewish god is there at the feet of our god, Dagon. <laughs> and so then they left, and they came back the next morning, and their god's idol had fallen onto the ground, as if the god's idol was bowing down before Yahweh, the god of the golden box. And they're like, well, that's weird. And so they set him back up, and they came back the next day, and he's down again. And it's like this picture of the box has made the idol bow down. Even, even rocks worship God is the picture you kind of get there. And then the Philistines were so upset about that, they finally took the golden box, they took the ark of God, and they put it on a cart and uh, attached it to a goat, and they had the goat or the oxen, whatever it was that carried it, and they had that, that oxen take it up, and back into Judah. And so they, they gave the ark back to the Israelites on a cart. But that's the other red flag, right? Because now in this story, the Israelites are taking this box that is representative of God's glory, and they're going to bring it to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the place where God has established the king. So now David wants God to be a major part of the kingship, and so he wants the ark to be in Jerusalem. Makes perfect sense. David is trying to honor God this way. But the ark is now on a cart. And that's not right. That's how the Philistines transported the ark. That's not how the Jewish people are supposed to do it. Take a look at this. From Exodus chapter 37, this is how the ark was made. Uh, the guy who made the ark, his name was Bezalel, and he did it under the instructions of Moses, who got the instructions from God on the mountain. And it said he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The ark was a golden box, a box made out of wood covered in gold with rings on the side and poles would stick through those rings. They were also made out of gold, uh, well, wood surrounded with gold, and then they would be in these rings and then you would use the poles to carry the ark, human beings carrying the ark. You don't put the ark on a cart, human beings carry the ark. That's the way it was designed to be. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see kind of a repeat of that idea. It says this, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to, what's their job? To carry the ark, to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name. You get the Levites, and their job is to carry the ark and bless the people. That sounds like perfectly what David wants to do, right? He wants the ark to come in as a blessing in Jerusalem, right? He should have gotten Levites, but we didn't see that. They put it on a cart. But the Levites were the ones who were supposed to carry the ark. That's red flag number two. Something's wrong with this picture. The first one is just this reminder that it's God's presence. The second one is that they're doing it wrong. Now, look at verse 6. 
when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. You know, at one point in uh, time in my studies, I was reading some articles about how people who don't believe in miracles think this situation happened. And this is actually pretty fascinating. And I think it might actually be true in a, a way. See, the ark was made out of wood and it was surrounded with gold. One of the interesting things, physically speaking, is that gold is a very good conductor of electricity. Wood is not a very good conductor of electricity. When you have a layer of something that's conductive, and then a layer of something that's not conductive, and then another layer of something that is conductive, what you have built is something we call a capacitor. And if by chance, somehow, this ark had been on this cart that somehow, for whatever reason, had wheels on it that would be rubbing against the cart and producing a static charge of some kind, it is entirely possible that the ark could have been charged to some serious high voltage that then if you reach out and touch it, just like all of us know in the wintertime around here, you touch your friend, you touch your light switch, you touch something that you didn't, and zap! and enough zap, and you're gone. And so people are like, oh, so there's, there's, there's no need for a miracle here. This is just, you know, capacitance and physics. And, and so the guy reaches out and he touches this, uh, this box of electricity, and he got zapped. Okay, fine. But here's the amazing thing, okay? This is why I think even if that's the way it happened, it's still a miracle. Because, see, God knew it. And he, in advance, these people didn't know anything about electricity. These people didn't know anything about capacitors. But God knows that stuff. And he's like, I want you to build this box this way. I want you to build a wooden box with gold on the outside. And so God says, because you have built this box my way, you also need a very special way to carry it. You need to have poles in it that are conductive, that guys can hold onto while their feet are on the ground, so that the whole thing maintains ground state at all times. Like, even if you just say that God is a brilliant scientist, you've still got something cool going on there. I think it's miraculous because God knows this stuff in advance. He creates this stuff. He gives the rules to his people. And they have no idea that following God's rules is the only way to do it. Breaking God's rules, zap. You know? But the writer of this story takes it one step deeper. Because the writer of this story isn't just interested in the fact that they were doing something wrong. The writer of this story calls it irreverent. He makes a moral judgment of it. And so the first thing I want you to notice is that by calling it irreverent, he is highlighting the fact that these people are not following God's instructions. We do need to recognize they are not following God's instructions. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing you can write down there. But it's just another illustration of the fact that God knows what he's doing. For whatever reason, whether it was God just looking at Uzzah and divinely snapping his fingers and killing him, or whether it was the entire way that the thing was made, it doesn't matter. God is still the one who gave the instructions. God is still the one who understands it all, and violating God's instructions is irreverent. 
You know, if you don't do what your parents ask you to do, that's you being rebellious. That's you not being respectful. That's you being irreverent in a sense. And God here has given them some clear instructions. But here's the, the deeper thing. It doesn't refer to all the people. Did you notice the verse? It says Uzzah was killed because of his irreverent act. The first blame, even though the blame can be given to everybody who decided to put this box on a cart, and by the way, by putting it on the cart, you can tell at that point in time it wasn't charged up. They got it on the cart just fine. You can also tell that touching the box was not the thing that got Uzzah killed because everybody else had touched the box when they put it on the cart. So touching the box isn't the thing that's irreverent. There's something else that's going on here that's irreverent. And it's specifically what Uzzah did. And if you put yourself in Uzzah's shoes, what is he thinking at that moment? He's thinking, the oxen have stumbled, the cart is wobbling, I need to stabilize God's box. I need to stabilize the ark. This is weird, but write it down. Stabilizing the ark is the irreverent thing. Now, this, this confuses me a lot. Because from one perspective, Uzzah is doing the right thing. The ark is about to fall. The oxen have stumbled. The cart is wobbly or something. And from one perspective, the ark is in trouble. And someone has to step in and save it. Someone has to do something. And isn't, isn't the Bible often telling us that it's a noble thing to step into the situation and be part of the solution rather than letting it be a problem? I mean, isn't that the way the Bible has so many stories? We saw it in David and Goliath, right? Here's this big guy, Goliath, and Goliath is the bad guy, and he's going to cause all these problems for the people, and he's challenging them, he's challenging God, and here's little David. David steps up, he says, well, I'll go in there, I'll step up, I'll fight the guy, and we're all like, yay, David, way to go, David, for stepping up and being part of the solution rather than letting the problem just happen. And we're like, yay, David, go ahead, that's great. We could say the same thing about Samuel before that. We could say the same thing about a lady named Deborah. There was no one in the area who was leading. Everybody believed that men were the only people who could lead. No one of the, none of the guys were leading. And Deborah steps into it. She goes, no, I'll take charge here. I'll help everybody understand what God's will is. And she steps into it. And everybody's like, yeah, Deborah, way to go. We're so happy that she did that. You could go farther back into the Old Testament and see older stories. Or you could look at newer stories. We could look at the story, for example, of a lady named Esther, right? For such a time as this, anyone who knows the story of Esther knows that she's the one. The Jews were going to get slaughtered, and Esther steps up, and she's like, no, I'm going to be part of the solution. Man, don't you kind of think we should be cheering for Uzzah, who steps up and is trying to be part of the solution here? There's a difference. I mean, you've probably noticed the difference in the way I've talked about these things, but I'll just point it out to you. The difference is that in all these other hero scenarios, what's being saved are people. 
In every one of these other situations, the hero is a person who steps into a situation to risk themselves to save others. In every one of these hero situations, that's the way it works. But in this case, Uzzah, one, from his mind, isn't risking himself at all. And two, he's not saving any person. He's saving a box. And that's the problem. Because this box is either one of two things. Either this box is just a box. And Uzzah's like, oh, well, God's box is rolling off the cart. Got to stabilize God's box. No big deal. You know? Either the box is nothing, and Uzzah's like, well, got to take care of God's box. You know, put it back on there. Or the box is the representation of the presence of God himself. In both cases, what Uzzah is doing is irreverent because of this. Even though God has asked us to save people, he has never asked us to save him. We don't save God. God saves us. That's the way this relationship works. You see, when that ark is beginning to wobble, Uzzah, in his mind, thinks God's got a problem and I have to step in and I have to solve God's problem for him. God never gets in trouble. God never has problems. God never gets surprised by a thing. God's never going, oh no, I hope someone steps in and saves my box. That's not the way God works. Listen, if, don't you remember? The ark of God never falls down. It's the statue of Dagon that falls down. The ark of God doesn't fall. Other things fall to it. I wonder what would have happened if he just let the cart stumble. I mean, maybe the ark would have fallen down and we would have all realized that God really doesn't care that much about his golden box. Or, I don't know, maybe the whole thing just levitates. And it's like... God is just, I'm not going to let this thing fall to the ground. This is the symbol of my presence in this place, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of it. But just, just hear me out here. God can take care of his own problems. God can fight his own battles. God can solve his own struggles, because God never has struggles. He's that in charge. I am so tempted to be Uzzah. You know, I'm so tempted to look in this world around me, especially over the last few years, and look at all these problems, and I'll be like, God, why don't you just save your own dignity? God, why don't you just step into this situation and solve this problem because the way I see it, you're not doing the job to protect yourself well enough, God, and so I need to somehow get onto Facebook. I need to somehow talk to my friends about this issue. I need to somehow jump into the fray because God's not taking care of his issues on his own. I have to somehow step into the situation and stabilize God's shaky box. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there a lot. And it's this idea that for whatever reason, God needs me to save him. And that's not the way it ever works. See, at the moment Uzzah reaches out his hand, there's something in his heart that says, God's in trouble. I need to step up. There's one story of one time when someone other than Uzzah tried to save God. 
You might know this story. It's in the garden. And a guy named Judas and a crowd of soldiers and religious leaders are coming to get Jesus. And Peter decides he needs to save God. And he pulls out a sword and he swings his sword somehow so badly that he cuts off a guy's ear. And immediately after he does it, Jesus turns to Peter and says, put that thing away. We don't need swords around here. As if Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't save me. I save you. Put the sword away, Peter, and then Jesus heals the guy's ear and then walks right into what we would perceive. Trouble, tragedy, struggle, stumble. Here's the thing. God doesn't need my help to save him. What he wants me to be part of is saving others. See, that's, that's the part that where I can be the hero. But God doesn't need me to protect him. He's doing just fine. And that's why Uzzah's actions here are irreverent. But we're only really halfway through the story. Pick it up in verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Here's the question. Is God scary or is God good? Is God scary or is God good? I mean, because scary, Uzzah just fell dead, and David is like, oh, I don't want the golden box. I don't want the ark of God anywhere near me, you know? We're going to take it over to Obed-Edom's house. I don't know what David was thinking Obed-Edom would do with it, but he takes it to that guy's house, and then that guy has it for three months, and God just blesses him. And it's like, wait a minute. Is God scary or is God good? Yeah. For the people who receive God for who he is, He's very good. For the people who feel like they need to somehow control God, influence God, save God, rescue God from himself, for all those people, he is scary. But it all boils down to whether or not we're going to be the kind of people who receive God for who he is or people who who just want to be in charge and do things our own way. And so now we come to the climax of this story where David has finally heard that the ark has brought blessing to Obed-Edom and all his house. And David now is like, well, if God is blessing those who have the ark, we just need to do it right. And the book of Chronicles goes into way more detail. We get two whole chapters of how David prepares in advance to get the Levites to carry the ark, to walk on the ground so that there's no cart situation, there's no oxen situation. They're going to do it right all the way. And so he takes two whole chapters of that to, to make this all happen. I think the three months he's planning. But here's the deal. In this passage, we just get the end result. We just get the final parade into Jerusalem. Here we go. It starts in verse 9. 
Excuse me, verse 12. Now David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, notice that, see that? They're carrying the ark now. It's not on a cart. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now, I don't know if he's doing this every six steps because that would be a lot of bulls. That would be a lot of animals to slaughter if they're doing it every six steps. And I'd be like, dude, take large steps. But I don't know if it's every six steps or if it's just the first six steps. Either way, this is supposed to communicate a massive moment, a moment of incredible expense. And I just got to remind you, what happens with those animals when they get sacrificed? That meat gets then shared with a whole bunch of people and lots of people benefit from that. So we are talking massive party. But anyway, let's just keep going. Every six feet or maybe just the first six feet. It says this, um, wearing a linen ephod, verse 14. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Well, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. By the way, just pause there for a moment. If you have a different translation, it doesn't say half-naked. The literal translation of the word that's used there is disrobe. But you need to know something. It's not just used once. In this verse, the word disrobe shows up three times because Michael or Michal is so upset at what David is doing that she is triple emphasizing his nakedness. She literally says, look at you, disrobing in front of all the people as any vulgar fellow disrobing would disrobe. It's like, how many times can you put the word disrobe into one sentence just to drive your point home? She's like, you foolish king. You can hear the bitterness just dripping out of her. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The story of Michal is um, just sad to me. The bitterness in her heart is so evident. And let's just be honest, she had a reason to be, right? Right? 
She had originally been married to David, and then her dad took her away from David, made her marry this other guy, but then she was with this other guy who loved her for very long, and I'm assuming she must have fallen in love with this other guy too, because when then she is brought back, this other guy trails along behind, weeping and crying, and she doesn't seem like she is all that excited to be back with David, who is now the king in place of her father, Saul, and now here in this moment, the ark is coming in, and she sees David, and maybe she She's just overwhelmed by how humiliated David is and how humiliated she has been. And all of that stuff comes together and there's just bitterness in her heart. There's just bitterness in her soul. And man, I don't blame her for that. I'm imagining what that would be like. It would be so terrible, right? But at the same point, her bitterness has caused something to happen here. Now, just to help you understand what's going on, as they are bringing the ark in, David is wearing an ephod, and I told you this before, an ephod is like an apron, but it's an apron that goes in the front and the back, kind of like a poncho with no sides. It's just in the front and in the back, uh, a thing of linen that, that covers the front and the back. And it is the priest's garment, and there was a rule in the Old Testament that specifically said priests were not allowed to climb stairs ever while they're wearing the garment because then their private parts could be exposed. In other words, this was a garment that covered you, but not very well. It was a garment that covered you, but not all the way. And if a person were were possibly like dancing around... And maybe if that person were dancing like a lot, and and maybe that person was like really, really getting into it, then the garment that doesn't cover quite so much is not going to cover quite so much. And so, yeah, he's dressed, he's dressed in a priest's garment, but he's dressed in a priest's garment that, I don't know if it's like a hospital gown or something, but you can imagine what I'm talking about. And he is so into his dancing, right? Right? And this is supposed to be our king? Why would we want a king who's so emotional? Why would we want a king who's so dancing? Why would we want a king who like worships like that? Don't we want strong? Don't we want, you know, diehard Bruce Willis? Don't we want kings like that? And McCall is looking at David and she's like, ah, what a fool. And then, here's the key to it all. Verse 16 and 21. Notice what happens here, just a tiny detail. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. What do you expect her to see? What do you think she should be seeing? What should, we, what should she be looking at? I think she should be looking at the incredible parade. I think she should be looking, about, looking at the amazing box of God, the golden ark that is being brought into the city. The presence of God is now coming to the city where she is. She's looking out the window and there, right there, in her eyesight, I mean, she could be on the street, that would have been one option, but she's in the window, that doesn't, anyway, right there on the street is the presence of God, she is watching the presence of God, well, she could be watching the presence of God, but what is she watching? 
It said, when she saw King David, that's the problem. It has nothing to do with her seeing him leaping and dancing, and it has everything to do with her not seeing God. Verse 21, David says to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. I'm dancing before the Lord. Verse 21 at the end, I will celebrate before the Lord. Here, let me summarize this for you. The McCall story goes like this. She was bitter, that's justified. But she allowed her bitterness to distract her from the presence of God. And then, because she was distracted by the presence of God, something else happened, which is amazing. She missed out on a blessing. Did you notice that in verse 20? Verse 20, it says that David was heading home to bless his family. He was heading home to bless his household. And she comes right out and cuts it short. Here it is, Michael. She was was bitter. Yeah, I get that. But out of her bitterness, she was distracted from the presence of God. And then as a result of that, she missed out on a blessing. It's justifiable, but it's sad. And I've been there. I've been bitter to the point of missing what God was doing and missing out on a blessing. And here's David's side of the story. David just has two character things going on right here. Number one, he is celebrating God. And he is not just celebrating God, he's blessing others. The whole story is about David celebrating God and his presence coming into the city and him blessing the other people around him. He's giving away bread. He's giving away cakes of raisins and dates. You get a bread. You get a bread. He's like the Oprah Winfrey of raisin cakes. And he is just, he is just celebrating God and he is blessing other people. And it's an amazing moment for him. And now he's trying to bless his own household. And that gets cut short. But with David... The thing is, he's, he doesn't care about his own reputation at all. He's not even slightly interested in maintaining some semblance of prestige. He says, I'll become even more undignified than this. You see, this moment, David is highlighting that God is in charge. And he can be humiliated And it doesn't matter because God is so in charge. Whatever happens to me doesn't matter. I want to give you three simple things to kind of take home with you. Because the question is, how will I respond to God? David, how does he respond to God? Well, initially he's afraid, but then he comes around and he says, no, I'm going to do things God's way. And he responds to God positively in almost every part, except for this one part about the the women thing. That's a problem for him. And it's going to be a problem later. We'll see again. And it was a problem here too. But David is trying to pay attention to God in most of the things. And so that's where his heart is. He is celebrating God and he's trying to bless other people. That's where his heart is. Uh, Michal, she is totally distracted. But I want to ask you three questions based on the three people in the story. Number one, based on Uzzah. Will I be the kind of person who diminishes God or lets him be God? Am I going to put my limits on God? Oh, his his box is rocking. I got to hold it and stabilize it. God can't handle his own stuff. I got to step in there and solve the problem. Will I be a person who diminishes God or lets him be God? Question number two. Will I be distracted from God? Well, because there's all these other things. 
Well, because look at that guy, and look at that person, and look at what they're doing, and look at what this could possibly do. Am I going to be distracted from God? Because there's so many other things, right? Or number three, will I be a person who rejoices in him and shares his blessings? Now, again, I'm not saying David is the perfect guy here. It's just in this moment, he's done something noble and honorable that we should emulate, and the other people in this story have done things that we should not. Am I going to be the kind of person who rejoices and shares his blessings? Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.